Well, last fall, I purchased some pumpkins for our back porch steps, and they were really gorgeous. They were that sort of light robin's egg blue that pumpkins seem to come in these days. And uh, anyway, by around Christmas time, it was time to remove the uh, desiccated flesh, and I took it over to a corner where we have a compost pile, and lo and behold, this summer, this entire corner of our yard has this thriving green vine, and um, everything was going well until a gardener friend visited me last week, and she said, are you sure those are pumpkins, she said? Because there's a lot of things here in Tennessee that kind of look like that, and most of them aren't pumpkins. Well, I realized I'm just going to have to wait and see, you know, what kind of fruit those vines are going to bear. Well, this morning, we have read from the opening passage of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And at the time he was writing, he was in jail, and some historians think probably in Ephesus, maybe between 55 and 56 AD, he had planted a church that was thriving there, but there was also controversy, and it was very possible that he was in jail at this time. And this is where he's writing this letter to the Colossians. We know that Paul was very strategic about where he spent his time, and he went to the larger cities uh, to speak his message. And Colossae was a very small little uh, urban development, about 125 miles uh, away from the ocean, away from Ephesus. But it turns out one of the residents of Colossae has come to Ephesus. His name is Epaphras, and he has heard the message that Paul has been preaching. And what was that message? Well, you all know it, but just to go over what Paul was really driving home uh, at that time, of course, he started preaching in synagogues, and he would say, well, the God of Israel who promised he was going to send a Messiah, has sent him. And his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. He came, he was a human, he dwelt with us, he, was, he ate, he slept, he was a human in every way. But he was also fully, fully God. He wasn't like some sub-God that God created and sent off to do this difficult task. He was God in every way. In fact, you could say he's God with skin. If you want to see what God's like, you look at Jesus. Well, he sent this Messiah, and Jesus lived his life, and then early in his 30s, he willingly gave himself up to be crucified. And Paul said, and strangely, that sacrificial, loving action of Jesus, of God, has removed guilt and put it on God's own body. And the deal is that he offers to us, because of that, forgiveness of our sins and this inheritance in the saints of light. He calls us his beloved because of what his son Jesus has done. Uh, and more than that, Paul went on to say that uh, this Jesus who was crucified rose bodily from the grave and was seen by many of his followers, and that he is still alive. 
and he's going to return. So all that was pretty extraordinary to hear from Epaphras. But then there was something else even that was very distinctive. And that was that this invitation that God had offered through Jesus, uh, it was to everyone. Because this God was the God of everybody. He wasn't just the God of Israel. He was the God of the whole world. So the invitation was for you, even if you weren't born Jewish, uh, it wasn't actually uh, conditional on how good a life you've been leading. You, you might not have your act together, actually, and this invitation is still for you. In fact, you could be a sinner that everybody else looks at and condemns, and this invitation from God through Jesus to be forgiven and become part of his family, it's for you. So Epaphras had brought this message, some variation of it, to Colossae, and there's Paul in prison. And what do you think he's thinking? He's thinking, well, did he get the message right? Because, you know, Paul hadn't been to Colossae. He didn't know what Epaphras was, was building down there. And so when Epaphras comes back and gives him the message of what he's done and what the church is, is like, Paul is listening to hear if it is the true fruit of the gospel message, of the gracious message of what God has done. That's what the gospel is, the message about what God has done. Uh, you know, he's basically wondering, he's looking at that vine, and it's like, is it going to be a blue pumpkin? You know, that's where he is. Well, apparently, Paul is delighted. Because when he hears the report from Epaphras, he hears about the most essential characteristic that identifies this new church as Christ's body. It is the love they have for all the saints, all the saints. It's love in the spirit that Epaphras talks about. And Paul recognizes, well, that would be the sign. And of course, this love that Epaphras is talking about, it's not just that sort of cozy sentiment that is limited to like-minded folks. You know, I mean, you know, like the love that the quilt makers of America might have at a 4th of July picnic when everybody, oh, I get how you use that fabric, and, you know, they all understand each other, and it's easy to get along, you know. Or uh, the mustache club of Carleton College, you know, there they all are in a pub, we've all got our mustaches, we get each other. This is not like that kind of love. This is love for all the saints, you know, the odd ones, the overbearing ones, the charming ones, the mature ones, the immature ones, the Greek ones, the Jewish ones, the elderly ones, the young ones, the rich ones, the poor ones, the healthy athletic ones, the not so healthy athletic ones. Love for all the saints, so distinctive in a church that is born out of the seed of the gracious message of the gospel. And that love that he describes runs deep in action, you know? It's a kind of unflappable love, you know? A love that is kind, humble, patient love that bears with one another, love that forgives one another. In other words, 
love that was like the costly love of Jesus Christ that they had seen in God, in Jesus. Well, Paul knew that the gospel message, which is, as I said, that description of the gracious work of God, produces fruit that looks like a loving and gracious community. And when he was listening to Epaphras report, he heard evidence of that. Now, I want you to know when I first came to St. George's, and it hasn't stopped actually, but it was particularly when I first came, there was something that I heard over and over again. And it ran something like this. Uh, in the memory of many parishioners, they said that sometime, they couldn't quite say when it was, but sometime, St. George's had changed. They said, you know, it became a more welcoming place. You know, if you weren't necessarily a parishioner, you were coming for the first time, it just felt like a more welcoming place to be, uh, a warmer place, you know, a place where people were able to reach out, take care of each other, ask how you were doing, respond if there was a need. It had become a place where social status was not the dominant metric of value. It became a place where Jesus was not just, you know, an imaginary friend of some of the more emotional Christians, but actually, he was acclaimed as Lord, as Savior, and as alive. Alive, doing things right now at St. George's. Well, what a marvelous thing for like a new clergy person to hear repeated over and over again. I mean, it's kind of the most wonderful testimony from people in a church. Love in the spirit, that's what that is. Love that is unusual because it isn't qualified by tribe, but by the spirit. And I was imagining last night if it were possible to deliver a letter to the Reverend Mr. Jonathan Mitchell, uh, who was the man who became the first vicar of St. George's, when, and he was there when the cornerstone was laid in 1949, and it would be a letter describing this very growth in the nature of that church. I mean, what a great joy it would be to him to hear that the church he was praying for on that day would one day produce such fruit. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that one day uh, the Reverend Mitchell will be apprised uh, in the heavenly spheres of, of what has happened at St. George's. But I want you to know that the love you have for all the saints has come about not by chance, not by some gradual, natural, mellowing process. There is no natural, gradual, mellowing process. No. Or as a sweet outcome of the growth of rationalism or democracy, all good things, but no. The love you have has come by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the faithful transmission of its fullness and its grace. 
And it's an extraordinary gift of God to this place. And what is so exciting is that this visible, identifiable fruit, it's actually a beginning, a foundation. It's the beginning of what God is going to do next, right here. There is more to come. God just doesn't declare us beloved and then leave us alone. We might wish he did, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that individually or as a body. And that's good news. But I wouldn't be honest if I didn't mention what you already know, which is that this kind of growth is never free of pain. I asked God the other day if he would just make me holier on the inside. You know, zap. And, uh, you know, not so defensive or resentful, but instead thankful, generous, quick to admit my faults, and, uh, and quick to forgive others theirs. And what I heard, you know, on that inner voice that you hear, what I heard God say was, well, what would you be willing to give up, Marjorie? And I thought, ah, you know, I'd have to give up thinking that I'm right. And being entitled to my particular resentments, you know, I'd have to give that up. I'd have to give up my comfortable insecurities, you know, I'd have to say, yeah, I can get rid of that insecurity. I'd have to give up my pride. And that, we all know, is a surprisingly painful process. But of course, the fruit of it is peace. It is peace. God has done the work that saves us, claims us as his beloved, but he is not done with us, individually or as the body of Christ. God is on the move to bring us into maturity as Christians. So that in 10 years, someone here, or maybe several of you here, will say, you know, when we were first at St. George's, it was a very welcoming place. It was a very loving place, a place where we felt accepted, at home, cared for. But it has changed into something more. It is a place where lives are transformed. It's a place where my life was transformed. We began to have this deep desire to please God in every way with our lives. And we grew in understanding of God's gracious will. More and more people started living lives marked by the sacrificial love we heard about in the gospel. Well, I'm going to close with a prayer. It is actually St. Paul's prayer. But as I read it, I will be honoring the ministry and prayer of our priest in charge, Colin Ambrose, and also, I will be reading it in joyful anticipation of the ministry of our newly called rector, the Reverend Malone Gilliam, faithful proclaimer of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this reason, since the day we heard it, I have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen.